Hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my show, Rebel Roundup. Now, if you like listening to this podcast, then you would love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-format TV-style shows here on The Rebel. Subscribers get access to watching my weekly show, as well as other great TV-style shows, too. It's only $8 a month to subscribe, or you can subscribe annually and get two months free. And just for podcast listeners, you can also save an extra 10% on a new premium membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. And please leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews are a great way to support Rebel News without spending a dime. And now, enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite Rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Certainly, the optics in regard to Toronto-based Dominion voting look atrocious when it comes to those astounding allegations pertaining to voter fraud in the U.S. Well, just wait till you hear the latest from Kian Bexty, one of the few people in the world who is covering what is perhaps the most overlooked and underreported story of 2020. And the city of Toronto is no longer being transparent when it comes to reporting its Wuhan virus data. But why? And why is the city demanding Rebel News must fork over some $25,000 to get the answers? Sheila Gunn-Reed will weigh in on this doozy. And letters, we get your letters, we get them every minute of every day. And you had plenty, plenty to say about my video regarding Adam Skelly, the owner of Adamson Barbecue in Toronto, who had the testicular fortitude to defy the powers that be and illegally open his restaurant to hundreds and hundreds of appreciative customers. How dare he? I mean, who does Skelly think he is? Walmart? Those are your Rebels, now let's round them up. What does Dominion voting and the Great Reset have to do with one another? You've probably heard in the news a lot about both of these two things recently. Maybe even for me, I was actually at Dominion Voting's headquarters just a few days ago. I actually got thrown out of their headquarters when I was documenting the close ties that they share between themselves, Dominion Voting, and George Soros. They're actually tied to the hip with Tides Canada. They shared an office floor, not just an office building, but an office floor with Tides Canada. They shared a mailroom with dozens of other extreme left organizations like AWID, Adam Vaughn, Justin Trudeau's Lieutenant Caucus colleague in Toronto. Also startups created by Justin Trudeau's cabinet ministers, Catherine McKenna. You might know a little bit about her. Catherine McKenna started Level, a legal organization that specializes in globalist lawfare. It is typical of Justin Trudeau and his associates to hold themselves up in a building with Dominion voting. But I have documents to share with you today 
that are even more damning than sharing office space. Dominion Voting has financially donated to Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party in Canada. It wasn't even a long time ago. Of course, they've been longtime donors. Early in the 2000s, they were donating to Justin Trudeau. But even recently, when Justin Trudeau was Prime Minister, when Dominion Voting was securing contracts in the United States for the upcoming presidential election after Donald Trump was elected, then they realized that there was a real big problem. They were donating heavily to Justin Trudeau. Now, this just wasn't some random employee of Dominion Voting who happened to be a leftist radical. No, this was the founder and chief investor of Dominion Voting, John Paulos, donated thousands of dollars to Justin Trudeau in a political attempt to help him, to help him and his Great Reset plan. Justin Trudeau has announced his plans for the Great Reset just recently. Maybe it was a leak, maybe it was on purpose. You can watch it for yourself. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. Now, a few days after that, he started gaslighting Canadians, saying that the Great Reset was some grand conspiracy theory, and it wasn't actually true. Watch this. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people fall prey to disinformation, and if conservative MPs and others want to start talking about conspiracy theories, well, that's their choice. Justin Trudeau is in power because of thousands of Canadians who financially support him the volunteers across Canada, and of course his caucus that has remained loyal to him for over five years. His financial supporters are effectively partisan liberals, and they just happen to be the founder and chief investor of Dominion Voting, an organization that has an ungodly amount of power in the United States determining their election. Americans put their ballots into their boxes, and they just trust that the digital signal that comes out of it is the correct one, one that will determine who sits at the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. Now, there have been some problems with Dominion voting. Obviously, in Michigan, there was a 6,000 vote swing because of their boxes. They said it was user error, whatever that means, but that user error seems to be repeating itself over and over and over again. We've established here at Rebel News, through our on-the-ground reporting, not just that they share a mailroom and an office floor with extremists like George Soros, but also Dozens of other organizations, including people closely linked to Justin Trudeau's government, including people in Justin Trudeau's government, like Catherine McKenna. While the year still has another month to go before completion, I personally think that the most underreported and overlooked news story of 2020 happens to be Dominion voting. Not only does the technology of this company seem faulty and prone to fraud, but the fact that this firm shares Toronto office space with a bastion of leftist entities, including the ever-meddling Tides Foundation, is downright disturbing. And can it actually be possible that this company could be the primary reason why Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, might be occupying the White House come next January? Absolutely incredible. And joining me now regarding this fascinating story is Kian Bexty. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, Kian. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure. Uh, Kian, I got to tell you, that was yet another fantastic report regarding Dominion voting. But again, I have to ask, why the near radio silence regarding Dominion? Because if, if even half of these allegations are true, this has to be the scoop of our young century, no? Yeah, you would think so. Uh, it's almost like there's a group of individuals in the media who have an interest in not sharing this story. I wonder why that could be. Well, you know, 
Ken, what we've seen uh, with, since Trump took office in 2016, it, it's been a never-ending, relentless attack. It's been fake polling, fake news, fake scandals, fake, fake, fake. Could this have been a fake vote that turned the election as it stands now towards the Democrats? Because, you know, we have so many witnesses swearing under penalty of perjury that there were all kinds of shenanigans going on on November 3rd and the days ahead. And yet, again, I don't see the outcry to have some kind of clarity, some kind of transparency of what really occurred on those days. No, that, I mean, that's a great point. We are seeing fraud happening in so many different states. Some of them uh, don't have Dominion voting systems in them. Most of them do, it seems. So, I mean, you have to look at this on the balance of probabilities. Um, does it seem, does it appear to a normal thinking person like this election could have been um, could, could have been influenced by uh, nefarious actors? Could it have been outright uh, flipped by these, these same actors? And it looks like, well, Donald Trump at least thinks that it has. Um, him and Rudy Giuliani right now are... Um, are still filing lawsuits. Some have been overturned, but some of them have, um, they've actually won uh, just recently in uh, Pennsylvania saying that, um, saying that the, the, the votes that had been cast did not match up with the actual docket sheets that actual poll watchers were looking at. So um, I think it's, it's safe to say that this election it, calling calling the, the validity of the results into question is a very fair thing to, to ask right now. You know, and Keenan, it's so odd, isn't it, that a Canadian company, one based in Toronto, is was used in, I believe, 30 states, and yet I believe the uh, president himself tweeted that Elections Canada doesn't use it for our federal elections. Oh, you have to wonder, how did they <laughs> make such a selling job that 30 states south of the border uh, would embrace this technology? Yeah, that's a good question. They seem to they seem to have done very well for themselves everywhere outside of Canada. <laughs> I mean, they've also been picked up by uh, the Ontario, which uh, they used Ontario used Dominion voting systems for a certain period of time. Um, I believe that would have been Kathleen Wynne. Maybe she was hoping that uh, Dominion voting would swing in her favor a little bit more than it did in the last election, but. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. Whether fraud happened or not is a totally different question, though. Um, that, but your point is right. I mean, why is this company that even Canadians don't trust? Why did they manage to get into get get these massive contracts from dozens of states and hundreds of counties? And also, uh, you got to look at the, some of the states that they tried to sell this technology to, such as Texas. They wanted no part of it. They, they they just turned their backs on this uh, thing. And the other thing too, and of course you address it very adroitly in your report, Kian, this business about Dominion voting, um, giving um, donations to the likes of the Clinton Foundation, the Trudeau liberals, you would think, I mean, I would think if I was running a company that was providing technology for voting in democracies, that you would have a strict policy of being nonpartisan. No funding for campaigns, no funding for candidates, no funding for any kind of political parties, because you want to be completely impartial. And yet, 
they're kind of brazen about where their leanings are, aren't they? Yeah, it's not just the donation to Hillary Clinton's pet charity, right? Like, and, and that's something that dictators around the world would do to win favor with the former Secretary of State. They would donate to her, her personal charity and hope that that would mean that the United States government and all the power that it had would turn and say, okay, yeah, Libya, you can have, you can have some money. You can have this contract or we'll go a little bit easier, easier on you. Um, and for some reason, Dominion voting just happens to fall into that category. And it's not just Hillary Clinton and her pet charity. It's also directly to Justin Trudeau, the founder and chief investor of Dominion voting. John Paulos has donated thousands of dollars to Canada's liberal prime minister. If that doesn't show you that the company itself doesn't have any sort of neutral leg to stand on, I don't know what possibly could. Yeah, and uh, those executives at Dominion Voting, they seem to be in a bunker somewhere, don't they? I mean, they have yeah. just been uh, completely off the map. And, you know, I want to get back to, uh, Kian, because it really bothers me since we are with a news organization, the fact that you would think, given how momentous this scandal can be if the allegations are proven true, you would have every major United States uh, news organization on Spadina Avenue, trying to find out the truth behind Dominion voting, and yet they just can't be bothered. I, I think this lends credence, you know, the great Mark Levin, he calls the mainstream media in the U.S. the Praetorian Guard for the Democrats, that they're all about exposing scandals with the Republicans, even fake ones, but when it comes to scandals with the Democrats, it's a matter of covering it up. That's not journalism anymore, is it? No, absolutely not, David. Um, I was as su surprised as you, actually, when I showed up on location. I, I was wondering where the hell, where the hell is everyone? For much smaller things, the uh, mainstream media in Toronto will line the streets with their satellite trucks, uh, reporters all the way up and down the sidewalk, interviewing anyone with a pulse. But for some reason, when it came to this. They were nowhere, nowhere to be seen. I don't know why that is. You know Toronto better than I. But maybe this is something that is a problem across the mainstream media, not just in Toronto. It's uh, um, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in Toronto or Calgary, the mainstream media is almost uniformly behind um, leftist new, uh, I almost said new world order, uh, <laughs> the great reset ideology, right? So, um uh, you know, I, I, this is evidence that you just can't trust them. hundred percent. So many of these journalists, they're not investigative journalists anymore, uh, Kian. They're cheerleaders. I find it amazing they can type out their copy with their pom-poms still attached to their wrists. One last question, my friend, and it's probably an unfair question, given that there's so much uncertainty in this story moves by the hour. But if you had a crystal ball and you were to look ahead to next January, who do you see sitting in the White House uh, come January 2020? It's a good question. Um, I know everyone watching this wants me to say Donald Trump, but I just don't have faith that the the what I have seen with my own eyes, the widespread corruption in both the United States and the mainstream media. I just don't have faith that that they can be overcome. I maybe I should. Um, given the job that I hold, but I just, they seem to be, they seem to be more powerful than anyone could have ever expected. Um, and it's just so disappointing to say out loud, but it's true. They're winning 
they're winning all of the time. And it's, I mean, take that as you will, maybe we need to step up our game, but um, it's, it's, it's something that the right all across the political, uh, the, uh, the right all across Canada and the United States needs to change how they operate and look at how the left is doing things because they're clearly, uh, they clearly know how to run political campaigns in the modern age, how to use the media to um, sell their, sell their lies. Um, now we need to do that and flip it. Uh, we need to sell, you know, the the real story. We need to sell that properly to people so that they can actually see what's going on. Uh, and politicians and the media need uh, on the right needs to be picking that up. And OAN seems to be doing a good job of it. But um, there, there there needs to be far more work to, needs to be done. There needs to be more foot soldiers on the ground. And I just don't think that uh, we had that in place for 2020. Yeah, you know, Key, and they always say, always bet with your head, not with your heart. And given that, I truly believe that this was a stolen election. That's just my hunch. I don't have the proof. Uh, that's what makes this story so utterly heartbreaking. But great report, my friend. Thank goodness you're doing it because no one else seems to be interested for whatever reason. So thank you again and have a great weekend, Kian. Thanks, David. And that was Kian Bexty in Calgary. Keep it here, folks. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. But the city of Toronto? It doesn't give out Alberta-style stats anymore about comorbidities. All of a sudden, in the middle of the pandemic, the city of Toronto, led by Mayor John Tory, stopped telling people the anonymous details of the people who were becoming sick and then dying with COVID-19. And we think Ezra Levant had something to do with it. Ezra's constant reliance on the data to debunk the reasons for the increasing restrictions on businesses and people in Toronto made Toronto and Mayor John Tory stop being transparent with the facts. So we thought, why not just ask why this bizarre change was made? to give people less information about the pandemic in the middle of the pandemic and who made this decision and when was it made? Now, here's what we asked the city for. We requested access to any emails and conversations from Toronto's public health that preceded any changes to the COVID-19 status of cases in Toronto's website or what prompted those changes? Now, here's what we got back from the City of Toronto. In an effort to satisfy your request on September 30th, 2020, you were provided with Toronto Public Health staff discussions on a mock-up dashboard along with key decisions that were made and the rationale for those decisions. Following this, you indicated you were still interested in obtaining emails regarding the changes to the website. Toronto Public Health staff advised us that in order to provide the requested information, staff would have to review over 100,000 emails. This would include searches of email accounts in a large number of staff, including but not limited to epidemiologist, planners, operational management, communication, senior management, web content experts, and IT support for Tableau. It has been estimated that each document would require 30 seconds for review, 
to determine if the record is responsive to your request. Now, here's the big stuff. Fee search estimate. Estimated search time for approximately 100,000 emails, 833 hours. Total estimated cost of record search at $30 per hour, 24,990 bucks. And they require a 50% deposit up front, so $12,500 before they proceed with our request. $25,000 for labor to look for digital documents that are readily available by doing a simple email search or a search on the city's internal servers. So what's worse, folks, the fact that the City of Toronto is clearly hiding something about its Wuhan virus case data, or the fact that the city is trying to deter us from finding out what it is that they are hiding by slapping us with an outrageous five-figure bill after receiving our Freedom of Information requests. Absolutely unbelievable. And joining me now for more on this incredibly egregious story is Sheila Gunn-Reed. Hey, how's it going there, Sheila? Hey, David, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. It is always a pleasure, my friend. But Sheila, I'm just wondering, whatever happened to that old phrase, you know, the public has the right to know doesn't seem to be the case in John Tory's Toronto, does it? Yeah, that's the thing. These things are either called access to information requests or freedom of information requests, but they both indicate in the name that I should have access to them and I should have the freedom to see the information. This is government information, which means that getting access to these records is a means by which we can hold the government accountable for the decisions they make when they think that nobody's watching. But this is nothing more than a paywall. I mean, CBC would probably pay this without flinching. Actually, CBC would never ask for this stuff because they don't care and they're incurious as journalists. But when you stick five figures in front of digital information that's already there you just have to find it and send it to me digitally like that's the thing they're not sending me file boxes of paper however i would love to print out twenty-five thousand dollars worth of government paperwork and stand beside it in nathan phillips square but that's not what they're doing they they send it to me digitally there's very little work involved in any of this it's just a keyword search send it all to me i'll figure out what's important um but they've stuck a five-figure paywall in front of this thinking that, oh, they're just this little upstart crowdfunded network. They'll never be able to afford it and they'll just go away. The thing is, when you do that to me, it makes me know that you are hiding something um, and there's, there's something pretty damning behind five figures of uh, bill just to get access to information we're legally entitled to have anyway. Oh, 100%, Sheila. I mean, that's the thing too, as you alluded to, this is just a matter of a couple of keystrokes on a computer yep. to get this information to us. It's not as though we're asking 100 bureaucrats to descend into the bowels of the City of Toronto archives and go through paper from a century and a half ago. I mean, it, it, it's outrageous, A, but B, I, what is your take, Sheila, on what the unspoken strategy here is, clearly they don't want to give us this data or give us the answers as to why this data was taken away and who was behind taking it away. But what is the unspoken reason 
for them having this, uh, you know, standoffish approach to delivering information because we have heard time and time again from our elected officials, all their Wuhan virus uh, decision-making is based on the science. Well, show us the science, show us the numbers. I don't get this. Well, that's the thing. I think that in these documents, um, we're going to see that they aren't basing their decisions on science, that these are political decisions. And really what I'm asking for is a justification for the city of Toronto to make a conscious decision to remove data about cases so that the public doesn't have access to this information because they were publishing all of it. It's the kind of information that we publish in Alberta here. The ages of the people who are becoming afflicted, the comorbidities, um, cases versus hospitalizations, all that stuff was readily available. And I think, you know, what they want people to know is the bulk data, the upward curve of case counts. But they don't want to show you how many people are being tested, how many people are getting sick, the ages of those people and the comorbidities. Because if they provide that data to the people in Toronto, the people of Toronto are going to say, well, I'm not 85. I'm not in a nursing home. I don't have three comorbidities, heart disease, diabetes, and, you know, old age, Alzheimer's, whatever. They're going to say, I, I don't have those risk factors. So why am I not allowed to leave my house, gather with my friends, go to the grocery store or buy in on essential? I think that if people in Toronto had that information, the people of Toronto would see that the city itself is using the coronavirus to control them as opposed to keep them safe. I think you're 100% right about that. And I think one of the catalysts in them having this policy change and keeping the data secret was our boss, Ezra Levent. Yep. He used to yep. go on that site uh, every day, look at the data, mine the data for what it really said. I don't think they counted on somebody doing that. You know, uh, certainly there's so many members of the media party that are just too darn lazy to do this kind of thing. And they don't want to present a counter argument to the lockdowns that are going on. But, you know, Sheila, it speaks to a bigger issue too. And it, it's almost as though how the city is like operating as a star chamber, even when it comes yeah. to public documents. I mean. You saw in the last 72 hours the saga of what I call the Great Canadian Barbecue Rebellion. Yeah. And that was, you know, Adam Skelly opening it up illegally. And you had the entire might of the state, 100 police officers, the mounted unit to forcibly shut him down. And there was a very telling interview on, uh, I think it was City News, where John yeah. Tory was kind of blaming the journalists uh, for covering it. It was kind of like, uh, you know what, uh, this is kind of embarrassing for me in the city. Uh, we don't want to, you know, we'd, I'd rather not have the public see the warts on our rumps, you know. Yeah. And, and it was almost as though he was trying to get the media to buy into uh, secrecy is the best policy. Yeah, and the media, if we're talking about the same interview, was readily agreed. They yeah. said, yeah, we, we'd love not to give him any coverage. Would you mind sending the cops over there to yes. close him down? <laughs> you know, 
that's not how this works. And again, going back to access to information, I said on the live stream, um, as you know, as we were covering the arrest of Adam Skelly, as God is my witness, I'm going to find out everything I can about the decision that came from uh, the city to send the cops to drop the hammer on Adam Skelly. And I want to know how the media knew to be there in the wee hours of the morning to catch the police changing the locks at Adam Skelly's place. That absolutely is a leak that came from the city of Toronto somewhere. And I'm going to find it in access to information. And I anticipate that bill, that bill to get that information is also going to be outrageous. I'm going to be told that we have to pay. And this is the thing about that bill, by the way. $30 an hour for some bureaucrat to search emails by keyword? Are you kidding me? That's outrageous. I, I mean, just give me all the information. I can search a PDF and I can plug Ezra Levant into that PDF. And I bet you that I'm going to get dozens of hits saying Ezra Levant is using this data to show that we are unjustified. And so we have to remove the data. That's what I'm going to find in that. But getting back to Adam Skelly, it, you know, I want to know how the city made the decision to drop the hammer on that guy. I want to know everything about it. I'm going to file more access to information. People can help me pay for that at rebelinvestigates.com. Access to information is how we see how the government makes decisions. And it's almost always political and not evidence-based. Yeah, and you know, Sheila, you're right. I shudder to think what the price tag of the Adam oh. Scali FOIs will be. Very quickly, my friend, we got to wrap here. Uh, we are going to appeal this decision, I understand. Yeah. And should we lose the appeal, then what? We're surely not going to give them over $25,000 for these digital documents, are we? Not if we don't have to. We are going to appeal. They might knock it down a few thousand dollars. Um, I want to see their justification for charging us $25,000 to search emails. I mean, that that's absolutely outrageous. I know government workers are overpaid for the things that they do, but that's crazy. So we are going to appeal. They probably will knock it down a few thousand bucks. Um, we're going to appeal and appeal and appeal to try to get that bill down, but we are going to get a hefty bill. And if it is as many documents as they say it is, we also have to put in the time and labor to look through these yeah. documents. So uh, even at the bill, whatever that enormous bill at the end of the day is, we still have thousands of dollars after the fact to search through those. We do have a researcher who helps us because, I mean, I can't. I, I just can't get through it all on my own. There's just so much. So um you know, we're going to do our best to keep the costs down. We stretch every dollar that people um, generously donate to us here at Rebel News. But there are going to be tens of thousands of dollars associated in just finding out why Toronto decided people needed less information in the middle of a pandemic. Indeed. And I think if an appeal fails, hey, why not litigation? We'll have to teach yeah. the city of Toronto yet again that we don't bend the knee here at Rebel News. Anyway, Sheila, great report. And uh, we'll keep our eyes on an update because I sure want to know the answers to the questions you're asking. Thanks, David. And again, if people want to help uh, fund our access to information investigations, they can do that at rebelinvestigates.com. Indeed, please do. Thanks again, Sheila. You have a great weekend. You too, David. Okay. And uh, keep it here, folks. More of Rebel News. To
What am I saying? More of Revel Roundup to come right after this. future so they have the same opportunities that I was provided. Hey Adam, what did the police and bylaw officer say to you? Uh, they were they were all very respectful. They made sure that we they took a look through and uh, I'm a little overwhelmed right now, brother. Uh, they made sure they took a look at the different uh, rules that we're supposed to be complying with. They found that we were uh, in non-compliance of people eating inside. Everything else was good. We're contact tracing. We have the signs posted so that the customers maintain social distancing, but it looks like there's a little bit of civil disobedience happening today. They decided not to enforce that, and it sure isn't my job as a guy who cooks brisket to uh, enforce government regulations. Adam, do you think you're a catalyst for so many other businesses in the same position you are with your backs up against the wall just trying to earn a livelihood that they will look upon what you've done today and they will also open up in civil disobedience of course i know i'm going to be the catalyst for this when everybody stands up and says enough is enough that's when we're going to see this end and what is the ostensible policy reason in the first place of shutting down a little mom-pa operator like you and yet the the costcos the walmarts the loblazes of the world they get to open it seems to be a, a, a double standard doesn't it don't ask me man how am i supposed to know i don't make policy i'm just supposed to enforce it at my restaurant i don't know why that's happening but it doesn't feel right to me and i know there's a lot of other people it doesn't feel right to them either well i'm looking at this lineup adam how soon are you going to run out of food uh, if, we, if we haven't sold out of some meats already, I'm sure we're going to very soon. We had a lot of support today. We have some freedom-loving patriots that are here to support. Uh, I'm sure we'll be out of food in no time. And no fine so far, right? No, sir. No, not a single fine issue today to my business, myself, or anybody who came here to support. What does it feel like to put defiance on the menu? Fucking amazing, bro. Meet Adam Skelly, owner of Adamson Barbecue and a rebel with a cause and that cause is simply trying to stay in business in order to support his young family despite various levels of government that are trying to put this entrepreneur out of business. Yeah, and they say we're all in this together, eh? What a joke. In any event, here's what some of you had to say about a restaurateur who has decided that he's not going to take it anymore. Tara's Garden writes, the more people who stand up, the less the government can do about it. I agree, Terrace Garden. It is my fervent hope that other entrepreneurs will look at what Adam Skelly has done and decide that they too shall follow suit. That sort of critical mass will really send a message to Premier Doug Ontario Open for Business Ford. Besides, what are the authorities going to do? Ticket and jail every rule breaker in the entire retail sector? Baron Villanova writes, government workers should not get paid if the public is not allowed to work. Huh, are you kidding, Baron? Because there's one surefire cure from being economically affected by the Wuhan virus, and it's this. Just become a unionized public sector worker. You are safe and untouchable. Zybernator63 writes, after watching this truth in journalism tonight, I'm a proud Canadian. Way to go, patriots. United we stand, divided we fall. Well, my friend, I can tell you this. With few exceptions, the mainstream media party was definitely not on the side of Mr. Skelly. In fact, they were critical of the government not shutting him down faster. 
But then again, most of the media party receives government subsidies to stay afloat, so they are kind of like public sector workers in that regard. Shameful. I mean, whatever happened to the old journalistic mantra of comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? It's kind of the opposite these days with the hacks working at the Toronto Star and the CBC, etc. Kyle Zoldi writes, This is 100% an attack on independent businesses in order to make everyone dependent on the state. It sure feels that way, and what about the double standard of who gets to open and who does not? Just 400 meters away from Addison Barbecue, there is a Costco. And when we visited that Costco, it was jam-packed. Gee, I guess the Wuhan virus gives a pass to big box store shoppers, but it really hates small operators? Who knew? And Creepy Little Girl writes, let's have a worldwide defy the lockdowns movement. Great idea, Greta. Oh, I mean, Creepy Little Girl. And let's start that movement ASAP while there are still businesses out there that actually have a fighting chance. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night.